Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi there, Laura Ross Bratellum here, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. For today's show, we wanted to share an episode from a podcast we like called Global Dispatches. It's the longest-running independent international affairs podcast. Host Mark Leon Goldberg talks to smart people who make sense of the world around us. What I really appreciate about the show is they often cover underreported stories that really shouldn't be underreported. Take the episode that you're about to hear. It's about Bangladesh. There were protests there recently about inflation. But the country's scheduled elections this year also played a role. Here's more from the podcast Global Dispatches. Bottom line, to make a long story short, I think what we're seeing play out in Bangladesh now is not new. It's a continuation of an old story, unfortunately. And also it's a reflection of the sign of the times globally, what's happening in so many other countries. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. A quick note before we start, Northwestern University is seeking applicants for their online Master of Science in Global Health program. Learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. Last December, protests erupted in cities across Bangladesh, including the capital, Dhaka. The proximate cause was skyrocketing inflation, triggered in part by Russia's war in Ukraine. But as my guest Michael Kugelman explains, these were not mass protests, but rather highly partisan events ahead of elections scheduled for this year. Michael Kugelman is director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and I think it's fair to call him a frequent guest of the podcast. We kick off discussing the significance of these protests. We then have a longer conversation about how these protests fit into broader trajectories of Bangladeshi politics and economy, specifically Bangladesh's remarkable economic growth and increasing authoritarianism under Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina. As we enter a volatile election season in Bangladesh, this conversation will give you the context you need to understand events as they unfold. And as always, please feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I always love hearing from you. You can email me using the contact form at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. 
Now, here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman, director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. So the protests that broke out in December actually came after there had been additional smaller protests and more isolated in weeks prior. But indeed, December is when we started to see some of the largest opposition protests in Bangladesh in some years. And Dhaka, the capital, was a site where you had significant numbers of protests, but also there had been some protests in other small cities around the country. Now, of course, it's always tough to give a really exact estimate of numbers in case you're actually on the ground. And I was not actually on the ground during these protests. But based on the most credible estimates, it seems like thousands would be a safe estimate. And, you know, just based on the visuals, looking at some of the visuals coming out of Dhaka, especially during the most recent protests on December 30th and December 24th, they look pretty big. Uh, I would certainly say thousands of people. I would not say hundreds of thousands of people. And I think another key factor in these protests that took place in recent weeks is that these were largely comprised of partisans, members of the various opposition parties. These were not protests that included the masses from across the country joining in just because of a desire to protest against the government. These were partisan protests. They were political, and it was mainly you know, the people that were on the streets or you know, card-carrying members of the opposition parties or otherwise close to them in some way. So in that sense, I would not describe these protests as mass protests along the lines of what we've seen, you know, in Iran in recent weeks and cases like that. It's a bit different from that. So what motivated the opposition to take to the streets in December? So I think that the opposition sensed an opportunity. Now, for several years, the opposition had been hit hard with crackdowns from the ruling party, and it really didn't have the capacity to stage protests. So I think that over the last few years, it had been trying to figure out how to mount a comeback and you know, what type of trigger could be useful for that comeback, to come back on the streets. And I think that for the opposition, the trigger was the economy. Bangladesh has really been a, a regional success story for economics in South Asia. Global success story. Yeah, exactly. A global success story. And yet what had happened over the last few months mainly a consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was that uh, you know, Bangladesh started to experience high levels of inflation, rising food and fuel costs. And of course, these are things that were playing out across many countries in the region and, and beyond that. And this was a surprise uh, to many in Bangladesh, just because it had been humming along for quite some time. There are also uh, responses by the government to this mounting economic stress that made things even more difficult. There were price rises announced, Electricity was rationed, and then uh, you started to see pretty significant, even at times nationwide, power outages. And the power shortages in recent months had gotten to the point that many businesses, including factories, had not been able to carry out activities. So the power cuts had become a major strain on the economy as well. And if you're talking about large numbers of factories that aren't able to operate in Bangladesh, that's a pretty significant thing, given that, as you know, garments and textiles are such critical drivers of the economy. But when some of that grounds to a halt because of these power shortages, that makes things difficult. And it's certainly translated to pretty significant levels of privation 
for the common person on the street. So that really was the main trigger that the opposition concluded that, you know, with this sudden fall or drop in uh, economic productivity and economic success, that was an opportunity to get out on the street. And obviously, when it comes to things like high inflation costs, it doesn't take much to get people upset and to get them on the street to uh, protest against the government. The other trigger that I would identify, which is quite frankly got less attention in the major press reports of these protests, is corruption. Unfortunately, in Bangladesh, corruption has long been a reality, but there have been several scandals in the financial sector entailing significant levels of graft. And so if you combine economic problems with rising corruption within the financial sector, that's something else that got people really upset. Another trigger for the opposition to capitalize on. Then if you bring in the issue of authoritarianism, that was another trigger. You know, the opposition and its supporters have experienced these terrible crackdowns perpetrated by the ruling party for, for a number of years, arrests, violent crackdowns on protests, and so on and so forth. So I think that the economic problems, the corruption, it gave the opposition an opportunity to come onto the streets and to bring more attention to this continuing problem of anti-democratic tactics in Bangladesh. Yet, as you noted, these were not mass protests. These were highly partisan protests. What explains the fact that you have the privation among ordinary citizens triggered in recent months by inflation and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, combined with corruption, combined with democratic backsliding and authoritarianism, yet it did not trigger much beyond a partisan protest. How do you explain that? Well, I think we have to keep in mind that the ruling party, the Awami League, which has been in power since 2009, does retain significant levels of support, right? So we're talking about all the problems that have happened in recent months under the government's watch. But, you know, this is a party that has still been able to point to significant levels of success, including the economic growth story. And I should say that, you know, the government tries to explain away the recent economic problems by saying that they're essentially a temporary consequence of external factors, i.e. the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They try to keep attention on the fact that, you know, the Bangladesh economy has still been one of the biggest success stories in the world with poverty rates having fallen, with Bangladesh poised to graduate out of the least developed countries category. So the government points to that. I think also uh, counterterrorism has been something else that has really won over a lot of support to the Awami League Party. There was a period, not now, but a period some years ago where Islamist militancy was a pretty significant problem in Bangladesh, not on the levels that it's been in Pakistan or Afghanistan and so on, but you had a series of deadly attacks. Uh, many of them were tied to the Islamic State. The Awami League cracked down hard, really hard, according to its critics, too hard. But you know, terrorism has not been a problem in Bangladesh over the last few years. That's another success story. And I think you could also look at other issues, uh, such as how the government has been able to make Bangladesh a bigger player on the global stage. It's been increasingly involved in UN peacekeeping operations in recent years. It has also, I think, endeared itself to many in Bangladesh through its successful ability, like India, to have a non-aligned foreign policy and balance its relations with India, with China, with the US, with Russia, for that matter. So the bottom line is that even if we talk about all these bad things happening in Bangladesh lately that have been exploited by the opposition, there's still a lot for the government in Bangladesh to point to as success stories, and that has helped it sustain a significant level of success. And that's why you don't have you know, just people across the board 
coming out into the streets. I mean, those that don't belong to the opposition, you know, either are, are apathetic or focus on other things, or in many cases, they still see reasons to support the government. And it is worth emphasizing the degree and extent of the success. As you noted, the Awami League and Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina came to power in 2009. And since then, GDP has basically quadrupled, as has GDP per capita. And along with that have been incredible gains on human development. I think I visited Bangladesh in around 2010 at the early stages of this government's investments in health infrastructure. And it's clearly paid off. All the data supports really like remarkable health benefits and economic growth and a sharp reduction in poverty. All that is undeniably true. But of course, in recent years, there has been profound democratic backsliding and increasing authoritarianism. What do you trace that to? Why has there been such profound democratic backsliding that seems to be accelerating in recent years in Bangladesh? It's helpful to subject this to a broader chronological context, so to speak. I think it's important to remember that before the Awami League took power, before Sheikh Hasina became prime minister in 2009, you know, the now opposition, and specifically the Bangladesh National Party, the BNP, was in power, and it was actually resorting to similar types of tactics. You know, there were crackdowns, there were forced disappearances. Many of the things happening today were in many cases happening back then when the BNP was in power as well. I think that's important to remember. You know, keep in mind as well that there is a long, pretty significant legacy of military influence, military power in Bangladesh. Not right now, but the military has exerted quite a powerful role. That obviously works against democracy as well. So, you know, I would argue that while it may seem that we're seeing this escalation in authoritarian tactics and this increase in democratic backsliding, yeah, that is the case. But if you look at the broader history, the wider history of, of Bangladesh, especially looking over the last few decades, unfortunately, these are things that had played out previously as well. But, you know, and I guess another way of answering your question, why are we seeing what we're seeing now? We're seeing this play out in many countries, in South Asia, and more broadly speaking. I think democracy, unfortunately, is on the retreat in many countries. And I think that many nations like Bangladesh have been what I would describe as hybrid democracies in the sense that they are still democracies on many levels, especially procedurally, there are elections and so on. But you know, those in power, including elected officials, are increasingly using undemocratic tactics to crack down on dissent and, and opposition and so on. It's happening in India. It's, it certainly is happening in Pakistan. It's happened in Sri Lanka. And this has happened in so many other countries around the world, too. And you could attribute that to toxic forms of nationalism that are focused on trying to, you know, assert the views and principles of a certain party that views its own positions as dominant. could attribute it to many things. Bottom line, to make a long story short, I think what we're seeing play out in Bangladesh now is not new. It's a continuation of an old story, unfortunately. And also, it's a reflection of the sign of the times globally, what's happening in so many other countries. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. 
even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo, heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Welcome back to Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm Laura Rosprautellum. Now, back to the podcast, Global Dispatches. So what are some of the unique ways that authoritarianism is rearing its head in Bangladesh today? I think that one of the newer, more troubling, and indeed something close to unique manifestations of authoritarianism is the use of relatively new digital security laws to essentially crack down on and arrest those that happen to be opponents of the government. This has happened many times where people who have posted messages that are critical of the government, and I'm talking about messages on Facebook and social media, they've been arrested under the pretext that this content is hateful or linked to terrorism or in some way dangerous to the state. And there was at least one case that I believe happened in 2021 in which you know, a young man, he wasn't famous or anything, but he had posted a message on Facebook that was critical of the government. He was arrested, he was thrown in jail, and he died in jail under mysterious circumstances. So it's very clear that Bangladesh is trying to exploit these new laws. This does happen to an extent in Pakistan and India as well, but relatively new in Bangladesh. And I think this is, you know, a case of recognizing that for many leaders, digital spaces, social media, are seen as one of the last bastions of progressive views and open views that oftentimes are in opposition to ruling governments and ruling regimes. And so the decision is then made to target those last remaining bastions as well to ensure that any remaining resistance is snuffed out. It's quite unsettling. And I don't want to overstate this. I mean, certainly you still have a rigorous, robust, free press in Bangladesh, but there are still cases of journalists being threatened, harassed, arrested. And indeed, if you're in Bangladesh, if you're from Bangladesh and you post anti-government messaging on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere else, there is the risk that you could find yourself in trouble with the authorities simply for being a critic of the government. And it seems this digital security law serves at once to suppress opposition to the government, but also as an excuse to arrest opposition figures who happen to post things on the internet. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is all part of the broader strategy of the uh, ruling party, the Awami League, to crack down on the opposition. And again, we've seen some really extensive crackdowns in recent years, which makes all the more striking the fact that the opposition has roared back with these protests in recent weeks. And these protests are timed ahead of elections in 2023 in Bangladesh. What are some of the key dynamics that you are watching for as we head towards elections in 2023? I think like in so many countries, the economic story is going to loom very large. And especially if the government is able to somehow ease the growing economic stress in the country. Because again, I mean, the economic problems have been a main trigger for these opposition protests. So if the government is able to get things back in order, that could certainly get it some breathing room. I think that could ease the concerns of many within the government, which the opposition has tried to exploit. And obviously, the opposition could lose momentum if suddenly 
prices are coming down, if inflation is easing, and so on. And Bangladesh has gone to the IMF. It's looking to get some assistance there. Certainly has some plans, but again, it's going to be a while until we know what direction the economy is going. But that's for me, that's a key signpost to look for in 2023. And and as you know, the election's coming within a year or so. Is the government able to rein in the economy? And I think the broader question is, you know, will the war in Ukraine continue? Because we've seen that that war has had such dramatic consequences for the global economy that have played out particularly vividly in countries, particularly in the developing world, that you know have particularly vulnerable economies. Of course, it's not just that. We're seeing the economic consequences play out here in the U.S. as well. That's one thing that I will really be watching is how does the government handle the issue of the economy? You know, does it do a better job? Does it do a worse job? How does the opposition react? And you know, beyond that, will we see some changes in the composition of the protesters themselves? Again, I've been emphasizing that to this point, the protests are mainly partisan. But if the economy continues to go downhill, if the government really struggles to rein it in, that's when you could start seeing larger protests where you just get broader public wanting to protest. That, I think, could become a bigger concern for the governments, and then it will face more of a challenge, more pressure. That then gets to questions about how will the government respond? Will it do what it's typically done over the last 13 years when it's been in power, and that's to crack down hard, including the use of violence? Or will it step back and try to allow these protesters to blow off steam, hoping that could actually help the government in some way? Given the track record, I think it's quite likely that if the protests escalate and increase and intensify over the course of this year, we could see increasingly harsh crackdowns by the ruling party, which obviously would add to the pretty considerable levels of political volatility in Bangladesh. Do you see a scenario in which Bangladesh could go the way of Sri Lanka, another country in the region profoundly affected by changes in the global economy sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which saw this just incredible, massive protest movement in the midst of massive economic calamity? Does that like level of economic calamity potentially loom over Bangladesh to the same extent as it loomed over Sri Lanka? I really don't think that we're going to see another Sri Lanka in Bangladesh. Uh, the main reason is that the Bangladesh economy is nowhere near as vulnerable as the Sri Lankan economy had been before it went into its dramatic tailspin. There have been many years of poor economic policies in Sri Lanka involving uh, taxation and uh, indebtedness and various things that, that really made uh, Sri Lanka's economy one of the most vulnerable in the world even before those global consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Whereas Bangladesh, as we've discussed, had been a not just a regional success story, but a global success story for economic growth. So I think it would take a lot. And my point is that there is a safety net in place for Bangladesh, that even if you continue to see these dynamics of, of rising prices and indebtedness and plummeting foreign reserves, even if that continues to happen, there is a safety net just because on a broader level, Bangladesh's economy is just more resilient, more foolproof than Sri Lanka has been. So it would take a monumental, catastrophic policy failure on the part of the government in Bangladesh to bring the country anywhere close to where Sri Lanka has come to over the last year. And you know, credit to the ruling party for the most part for its years in power for, for shepherding uh, some very effective economic policies. I mean, it wouldn't be the global economic success story that it is without the efforts of the Awami League party. So I'm fairly optimistic that you are not going to see 
an economic collapse along the lines of what you had in Sri Lanka. Is there a specific date set for the elections yet? Yeah, it's very complicated. No, there is not a specific date set. I believe they must happen constitutionally, uh, at least they must happen by, by January of 2024, but there's a good chance that they could happen in December of this year as well. Obviously, one of the many demands of the opposition is that the elections happen much sooner than that. In fact, the opposition would like the government to resign now and have a caretaker administration come in and prepare for national elections in the next few weeks, next few months. That's not going to happen. But yeah, I believe that by January of next year, the elections must take place. So in the coming months, is there any news coming out of Bangladesh that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how these elections might unfold? Well, I think that the first step is to make sure that the government is actually committed to having the elections when they're supposed to happen by next year. I think they will, because the government is always pushing back against this criticism that democracy in Bangladesh is faltering. And it's very important to for the government to hold elections. But I think one of the big concerns, even if it looks like the government is, is moving toward holding the elections when they're supposed to happen, and I'm sure they will, the issue of how free and fair they'll be. Again, the Awami League has been in power since 2009. Each election that they've won over that time, credible international election observers have all said that there were major problems with the election. I mean, let's let's be very clear here. You know, the last election, 2018, as I recall, the Awami League won re-election with 95% of the vote. Now, come on now. That's like Saddam Hussein uh, yeah. level of support. Exactly. This doesn't happen in democracy. So I think it's hard to pinpoint what to look for in this case. But if there's any indication beyond platitudes from the government that it's committed to a free and fair election, that would be a good sign. But again, it's very hard to identify possible signposts beyond the platitudes, but we would have to take the platitudes with grains of salt. So that's the key is looking to see that the government is indeed committed to holding the elections when they're supposed to happen. Again, if the protests get bigger, if the economy continues to tumble, if there's more pressure on the government, then you're going to hear a lot more from the opposition about the need to have elections before that. But I think that's unlikely. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? Any question I didn't ask? Any point you wanted to make? There's some very important political context to keep in mind with Bangladesh. This is a perennially polarized political environment. And a big reason for that is that the prime minister, Sheikh Hasina, and the main opposition leader, Khalida Zia, who's been in prison for the last few years, they are bitter rivals and they are members of rival families. And Bangladesh's politics ever since independence have been dominated by these two political families, these two dynasties. And so it's always a very polarizing environment. And if you're looking for to understand why we've seen these crackdowns on the opposition, and why, when the opposition was in power, was cracking down against the other party, one key reason to keep in mind is that there's a lot of personal animosities between the leaders of the main political parties and their supporters. Well, Michael, as always, I really appreciate your insights, your thoughts. Thanks for chatting with me about this. Thank you. Always a pleasure to join you. That was an episode from the podcast, Global Dispatches. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com.
This show was produced by Rosie Julin and Rob Sachs. I'm your host, Laura Ross Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>